Well, it's a joy to be able to bring the Word of God to you again this morning, and I'll invite you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we're, I'm continuing to preach through 2 Peter whenever I'm preaching here, whether in the morning or the evening service, and so we find ourselves here in 2 Peter chapter 2 this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 22. So 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word this morning. So 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Hear now the word of God. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, or as angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh 
those who barely are escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Beloved, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we rejoice this morning that we have this privilege of being able to read your word, that we have it written in our own language, in accessible form, and that we can turn to it today, we can read it, and we can hear it. And Lord, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to work among us as you promised to do, and that you would change us by the power of your word. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I have uh, very much enjoyed so far going through the book of Second Peter. I, uh, I, I was told when I was preparing to preach on this book that I was going to be engaging in a difficult task uh, because Second Peter is a very difficult book. In fact, it, sometimes it's, it's categorized as one of the most difficult books in the New Testament. And uh, one of the things that sort of helped me try to think through how to deal with this book is the fact that Peter here, as he's writing to his, his readers, he seems to be dealing with a number of different heresies, a number of different false teachings that have been going around among his recipients. And really, there are four chief heresies that Peter is addressing in this, in this book. Right? And we've covered two of them so far as we've gone through Second Peter. The first one was the heresy of antinomianism. And antinomianism is just a, a fancy word for anti-lawism. And essentially what the antinomians believed and what were, they were trying to propagate among Peter's readers is that Christians, because they're saved by grace, they can live morally licentious lives and still be saved. And uh, Peter was very upfront about that at the beginning of this book, saying, no, that's not the case. Uh, Good works are the fruit of genuine saving faith. And so we touched on that subject when we were dealing with that section. And then the second heresy that Peter had to deal with was the heresy of of rejecting apostolic authority. The heretics, the false teachers among Peter's readers were saying, you can't trust the apostles. You can't trust what they say. You can't trust what they write. They're probably just making things up. And Peter hits that head on at the end of chapter 1 by saying, No, we did not declare to you cleverly devised myths, but rather we are speaking to you the truths revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. And so those were the two heresies that Peter's dealt with thus far. And here at the beginning of chapter 2, we enter into 
a new heresy. And the heresy that was being propagated among Peter's recipients by these false teachers is the heresy that judgment is not going to come. The idea that God is so patient, he is so good, or indeed maybe he just doesn't care that much, that he is not going to bring judgment on wicked people. And that is a heresy that Peter spends this entire chapter trying to stamp out. And he does a good job of it. Because what Peter wants to tell his readers, and therefore what he wants to tell you this morning and me, is that judgment is coming on the wicked. Judgment will come on the wicked. That's Peter's main point. And he's going to show us that point in two ways. All right? Firstly, what he does is he shows how God has always judged sin in the past. And he gives us a kind of historical survey of important sections of the Old Testament showing God has brought judgment in the past. And then Peter turns and he says, look, because God has dealt with sin in the past and brought judgment, God's going to do that in the future as well. It's coming. So essentially you have judgment has come and judgment will come. Those are Peter's two points here. And so let's, let's take a look at how Peter unpacks this truth that judgment will come. And get ready, because this is going to be some heavy stuff, right? Because the Bible is not very light when it deals with false teachers. And Peter's using the false teachers here as an example to show how God's going to bring judgment on them. And therefore, he'll bring judgment on all the wicked. So let's look at how he deals with this. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Here's how he opens up this discussion of the judgment of God, the impending judgment of God. But false teachers also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And so essentially, before Peter begins to deal with the concept of judgment here, he wants to now turn and hit the false teachers head on. In chapter one, he was dealing with a lot of the teachings of the false teachers, like we talked about. But now he's really leveling his guns of criticism against the false teachers themselves. And he gives his readers kind of a I don't know exactly what to call it, kind of a sense of the basic characteristics or sort of, if you will, the basic red flags of a false teacher. And he indicates a number of them here. He says that they promote, in verse 1, destructive heresies, teachings contrary to the orthodox faith. He says that false teachers generally practice sensuality. And, of course, that word has very much sexual overtones in the Greek language there. And so he's talking about the fact that false teachers generally live very promiscuous lives. And you can imagine, if these false teachers are promoting antinomianism, not the idea that you know, we can live however lifestyle we want because God will just, you know, he just forgives automatically. You can imagine, that's, that is fuel for a sinful sexual lifestyle. All right, so false teachers live sensual lifestyles. Right? They lead God's people astray. They're greedy. Right? They exploit people with false words. They take advantage of people by claiming 
to be well-educated and they know the truth and they're going to give it and they corrupt the minds of people. And so Peter here, as he's beginning to deal with these false teachers and address them about the subject of judgment, he immediately calls to the reader's mind, these are the kind of false teachers I'm talking about. These are the kind of people that are in view. And what is it that we need to know about these people? Second half of verse 3. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. There's a very common notion among human beings. And this is not just something that we see today. This is something we see in all of history. Where human beings think that if we get away with something in the short term, that we're going to get away with it in the long term. We do something, we think we're going to we get away with it in the short term and nothing bad happens immediately. So then we start to do it again. We keep doing it and we get into this pattern of doing things. That's the kind of pattern these false teachers have gotten into. They're promoting these heresies. They're living this sinful lifestyle. They're greedy. They're taking advantage of the church. They're doing all of these bad things. And they've come to think God's judgment's not going to come. Because they're doing just fine. Judgment's not come yet, so it must not be coming. And Peter, he calls them out. He says, yeah, you false teachers, guess what? Your destruction is imminent. It is not idle. It's not sleeping. God has not fallen asleep. He's not stopped watching what's going on. He knows what you're doing. And guess what? Judgment is going to come. God will judge sin. And to show them this, to show the false teachers as well as his readers that judgment will come, judgment on sin will come, he begins in verse 4 with a kind of sort of historical overview of major events in the Old Testament. And he shows that God has brought judgment on sin in the past. And look at the examples that he gives. In verse 4, he gives the example of angels. He says that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. And you see, Peter here is referring, actually Jude does this same thing, but Peter refers to uh, the, the story that many of us, I'm sure, are familiar with about how Satan and some of the angels, a certain portion of them, rebelled against God in heaven and they were cast down from heaven. And they were, we're told here, put into chains of gloomy darkness, awaiting their final judgment. And so here Peter's saying, you know, even probably before the foundation of the world, before the, the, the earth was created per se, you have all of this business going on of God exercising judgment. The second example he gives is the flood of Noah. God brought judgment on the ancient world. He brought judgment on all of the people in Noah's day. Now in Genesis 6, you can read about this, that the people of Noah's day were so wicked that every intent of the thought of their hearts was only on evil continually. That is some rampant, licentious wickedness. And God brought judgment on them and only saved a small portion of people, Noah and his family. So God brought an imminent judgment there. But then the third example that he gives is the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
those two cities in Abraham's day. Right? And those cities were known as being thoroughly wicked cities, practicing all manner of sin. Particularly, though, they're known for the sin of sexual immorality. And more specifically than that, they were known for the practice of homosexuality, which the book of Leviticus later calls an abomination before God. And so you can see there, Sodom and Gomorrah, in its rampant wickedness, also received judgment from God. And the judgment that they received was not a judgment of water from heaven, but it was a judgment of fire from heaven, as the wrath of God was poured out and licked up the whole city. And it was no more. And so Peter's point here is to show, historically speaking, if you look back at the way that God has worked in redemptive history, you can see that there are all these kinds of judgments happening. And Peter says here in um, verse 6, that when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, it was, quote, to make them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So the event of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, of God raining fire, raining his judgment fires down from heaven on the city, that is to show us the kind of thing that God is going to do to all of the ungodly. That is the kind of judgment that must be put on all sin. And Peter says, guys, look at history. It is clear that this is how God works. You can't get away from it. Judgment will come on sin. God will judge sin. And that leads then to verse 11, where Peter transitions now from his historical survey as he wants to give now and show that God's judgment not only has come in the past, but it's going to come in the future as well. And he does that, first of all, by providing somewhat of a very uh, detailed and large account of the false teachers showing their rampant wickedness. And and he he describes them in a number of ways. Uh, In terms of their manner, he says that these false teachers are bold and they are willful. That is, they're not getting up and performing their, their false teachings. They're not you know, going about their lives in a kind of halfway way where they're just, uh, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm not. Here's an idea to think about. No, these guys are bold. They are claiming they have the truth and that their truth contradicts the truth of the apostles. Their truth contradicts the truth of Christianity. And so these guys get up there. They're bold and they're willful. They know what they're doing. And not only are they bold and willful, but they do it, we're told in verse 12, out of instinct. But these, verse 12, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Now, you might remember, if you were attending the evening services a while back when I was preaching through Jude, if you've got really good memories, because that was now getting to be a while ago. But when I was preaching through Jude, I pointed out Jude actually says this exact same thing. That the false teachers that Jude was dealing with were creatures of instinct. 
And what they're talking about is they're talking about the sinful human nature. And they're comparing it to animal instinct. You know, animals, uh, scientists are sort of puzzled about this when they look at animals. They're like, animals seem to just know how to do things. They don't have to be taught. Right? They, they just do stuff. And you can probably fill in the blanks with all kinds of different things that animals do. Animals don't teach each other things. They just sort of know. And scientists call it instinct because they don't really know how to describe it. Well, Peter and Jude say that false teachers, when they are doing the things that they're doing, that they are just operating instinctively. That is, their sin nature is just operating the way that it is. You don't have to be taught to distort the things of God. We do it by nature. It is our sinful human nature to twist and distort the things of God. And they do it like irrational animals out of a kind of instinct, Peter says. That's a serious, serious condemnation. And so that's their manner. But their lifestyle, Peter also highlights. And he says in verse 14 that they have eyes full of adultery. Eyes full of adultery. And they, in verse 13, revel in the daytime. And in the Greek, that word revel has sexual overtones. And so the idea is that these people are not only just looking for people to commit adultery with, they're not just lusting, but they are actually reveling in their adultery. They are reveling in their sexual promiscuity in the open. Everybody knows what's going on. It is obvious. It is public knowledge. Open sinfulness. Verse 14, they have an insatiable desire for sin. They are greedy. They are like Balaam, abusing the power and the status that they have purely for the gaining of wealth and status. This is not a good description. But in addition to their manner and their life, Peter also describes their teachings. He says they blaspheme the glorious ones. Jude talks about this as well, that the false teachers he was dealing with was, was doing the same thing. And what blaspheming the glorious ones basically means is that they're blaspheming the devil and demonic powers. That is, they're denying them power or existence. And false teachers like to do this. Oh, you know, the devil, not really sure he exists. Yeah, demons, no, that's a bunch of folklore. That's, they're not real. That's the kind of thing these false teachers are doing. They're denying the power of evil forces. And, and Peter says here, even the angels don't dare do that. The angels, who even are much more powerful, still don't blaspheme the demonic forces. We're told that these false teachers are practicing deception. They are enticing weak Christians to sin. And if all of that is not enough, verse 19 is awfully ironic. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. They themselves are slaves of corruption. And isn't this the kind of thing that we, we don't have to look at the ancient world to see this. We can see this today. The message out there is that you can have freedom as a human being if you just sidestep scripture. 
Now, if you just set this, this ancient book aside over here, and you just don't worry about the, the commands that God has in there or the teachings that God has, and you can come over here and you can pursue freedom in the sexual revolution. You can pursue freedom. You can have it. If you just cast aside all authority and if you become the authority, do what you want, be who you want to be, do what feels good to you. That's the message, isn't it? That if we forsake the commands of God, that we'll have freedom. But what Peter says, what Peter says, as we hold this word close to us, is he says, they promise freedom. But what they actually are is in bondage. See, folks, the law of God, the teachings of God, the Christian message, that is the true freedom. The law of God is not this, this sort of thing that, that, that just binds us and that, and that takes away freedom. But the law of God, when connected with the gospel, actually brings freedom. The message of Christ brings true, genuine freedom. It is the world that promises freedom that never actually can deliver. All it does is it brings people into bondage. And that's what these false teachers are doing. And then finally, here's the last thing Peter says about these false teachers. Now, this is key. He says in verse 20, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of, the, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now, this is very similar to what we talked about when, uh, in the Sunday School series on Hebrews back in chapter 6. Peter is essentially saying a very similar thing here. But getting, getting to his point, he's saying the false teachers are in such a bad state in terms of their worthiness for judgment that it would be better for them if they had never even heard the message of Christ than to have heard it and perverted it. That is quite the statement. That is quite the condemnation. It would have been better for them to have never have heard the gospel than to have taken it, perverted it, and rejected it. I hope you feel the weight of this sermon, the weight of judgment. Because, you know, anytime you hear a sermon talking about judgment, that God will judge sin, that God will judge sinners, inevitably there's a kind of weightiness that fills the room. A deep, heavy weightiness because judgment is a serious topic. And the reason why this sermon feels heavy is because this text is heavy. I don't just get up in the morning and say, hey, you know, I feel like preaching a sermon on judgment this morning. I mean, it'd be nice if I could just decide that. But no, I, I have to preach what the scripture says. And the scripture passage here is really heavy. It pronounces to you that God will judge sin. He is a holy and righteous God and he will bring judgment. And in the midst of this deep, heavy message, 
even in Peter's own words, there is a glimmer of hope. Look at verse 7. In Peter's historical survey here, he says in verse 7, And if God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Peter here is indicating for us that even in this message that God will bring judgment on sin, there is actually great joy and hope and comfort that we can have if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, folks, here's the deal. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, the message that God will judge sin is actually good news. And it's good news for two reasons. One is the reason that Peter explicitly says here. That when God brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, that though it was devastating and terrible and punishment for everyone else in the cities, it was salvation for Lot. That when God wiped out all of those wicked people that were surrounding, oppressing Lot, and as he was there, a righteous man, we're told, who was, who was uh, so concerned and, and oppressed by all these people, that when God brought that judgment, it destroyed the city, it destroyed the enemies of Lot, and he was free. See, there's a very real sense, folks, in which God's judgment, when it comes, when God brings that judgment... It's good news for us because he brings judgment on not only on his enemies, but therefore on all of our enemies as well. All those who oppress us, all of those who hate us, all those who blaspheme against us, they will be destroyed by the judgment of God. And that's not, on our part, a kind of wicked desire for revenge. But it's a joy that we find in God exercising his justice and putting his glory on display. That's the first way that judgment is joy for us. But the second way, and probably the most important way, the judgment of God on sin is good news for us, is because God never fails to judge sin. And therefore, he does judge our sin. Now you say, well, that doesn't sound like good news. Well, yeah, but that's because I haven't said the gospel yet. God does judge our sin. The difference is, for the wicked, he judges them with their sin. But with us, our sin was credited to somebody else. Our sin was transferred to the account of another. And it was that person, that man, who climbed Mount Golgotha and who was nailed to a tree. And it was him who received all of the fiery wrath of God from heaven poured out on him that licked him up and consumed him. That man, the Lord Jesus Christ, he 
took our sins upon himself. And the judgment of a holy God was poured out on him. And he bore that penalty and rose again and lives and reigns to all eternity. He is our high priest. Through his blood, we enter into the heavenly tabernacle. Folks, when we talk about God judging sin, is it weighty? Does it make us uncomfortable in some ways? Yes, it does. But it should also bring us great joy. Because God judges our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. And by faith in his name, we have eternal salvation. Folks, that is the gospel message. Without the judgment of God, without the the bad news, if you will, there's no good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what Peter wants his readers to hold fast to. Because as believers in Christ, when we enter that final judgment, when we walk up to Christ, when we see him on the last day, he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And the doors of paradise will open. And we will walk through with a perfectly cleansed conscience. And we will live with him there forever. All because... God judged our sin on Christ. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we rejoice this morning that you judge sin. Lord, it is your nature as a holy, righteous judge to make sure that all sin is judged. You have always done it in the past. And you will do it in the future. Lord, you will vanquish your enemies. As the Psalms tell us over and over and over again, you will trample down your foes. And Lord God, we thank you and we praise you this morning that in your grace, you have punished our sin by imputing it to the account of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, we... Rejoice in the gospel this morning and we pray that you would work it and massage this truth deeply into our hearts. Oh God, we thank you for the work of Christ this morning. And we pray all of these things in the holy and the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Our hymn of response this morning.